Okay, um, welcome everybody. My name is David Wang. Um, I am a professor in modern Chinese literature and culture. Um, together with my colleague, Professor Jia Li, I would like to um, welcome you to join this uh, lecture series in modern Chinese humanities. Um, this is a series um, which features um, a variety of topics. And for tonight, we'll have a very special guest who is going to share with us her most recent work on, on media, mediality against the background of uh, the turn of the 20th century. And of course, um, with an extension to contemporary era. Um, let me just uh, say a few words um, about uh, our guest tonight, Professor Shaoling Ma or Ma Shaoling. Um, she is an assistant professor teaching modern Chinese literature, media and art um, based at um, um, Yale Singapore uh, program uh, or National University of Singapore program in Singapore. Professor Ma received her PhD in comparative literature from uh, University of Southern California. And she has taught at the Penn State University and currently, as I said, uh, is uh, based in Singapore. Uh, tonight, uh, Professor Ma is going to talk about um, a very, very intriguing topic, which I just uh, cannot wait uh, to listen to. The uh, title is um, um, The Stone and the Wireless, Lyrical Media and the Bad Models of the Feeling Women. And I believe this is a part of her most um, uh, recent book, which just came out um, uh, from Duke University Press. Um, the title of the book is um, uh, exactly The Stone and the Wireless, Mediating China, 1861 to 1906. And I believe um, the talk will be extremely exciting. And um, uh, I uh, would like to uh, now invite Professor Ma to give her talk. Before we move on, um, um, ladies and gentlemen, if you have any questions uh, um, at the end of the talk, um, please raise your questions um, by typing um, your, your questions in our question and answer Q&A box, and I'll read um, um, your questions right after Professor Ma's um, uh, presentation. Now, without further ado, Shaolin. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Wong and Professor Lee for this kind invitation. I'm really happy to be here. And thank you for all of you who are attending from North America, Europe, and the time difference. Hope you had a good dinner. Um, I'd like to start with two disclaimers. Don't trust any authors who claims that they're not bored with their book, but trust even less the author who claimed that they're done with the book. So my parents have raised me to be trustworthy. I will confess that I'm pretty bored with a still unfinished book. So when writing this book talk, I thought the only way I can give one in good faith is to give one as a work in progress. Oops, let me share here. My slide's good. Great. There are two parts to the talk. The first, I'll start with the challenges I faced when writing this book, a little bit going into the background, um, appropriately titled The Trouble with Media. And then I will move into Stone Woman Wireless, or you know, um, the, this idea of the woman being in the middle and this idea of the woman and her feelings. And as I've said in my abstract, 
I find that authors often give attention to the introduction and the end of their book and often neglect the middle chapter. Um, this middle chapter really still influences how I think of all my ongoing projects, which try to bring together two large concepts, China plus media. This middle chapter functions like the plus sign and the sign is gendered. As I will elaborate, a book on media and the Chinese term Mei have everything to do with women, the traditional figure of the marriage go-between. The Stone and the Wireless is a study of late Qing literature and culture. It is a work of media history, and it's also a work of comparative media theory all at once. So interestingly, the book started out as none of them. I probably kept about 10 to 15% of my PhD dissertation, which examined, believe it or not, 19th and 20th century American and Chinese utopian fiction. I took half of it out, um, the American half, refocused on late Qing science fiction and realized only quite late in my research process that what communicated the fantasies of national and individual rejuvenation were fantasies of communication themselves. So then communicative technologies came into the picture really late, I would say about two and a half, three years ago, but only by moving beyond fiction and finding a similar trajectory in the political and social histories of the period. That is, after committing myself to studying late Qing history, I was then convinced that the interrelation between media, history, and theory is so integral to necessitate a thorough investigation. The history of media, perhaps even more so than other histories, directly concerned who reported what, when, and through which specific medium. It of course also matters where these media histories are situated. In learning from recent works on global media history that detracted from the dominant perspective of inventors and established users, often in the global north, I also became convinced that a retelling of media history is the incipient theorizing of what media do. But I still did not know what media stood for. I could not know that I was writing about media. I did not start this project thinking, okay, let this be a brave contribution to the media turn in Chinese literary studies. I did not. I'm foregrounding what I did not know because students and colleagues alike, I feel, need to hear more of each other's struggles and not just the lines on our CVs. I could not know that I was writing about leeching media because as it turns out, Media is one of those concepts whose related term, mediation, is necessary in the process of its definition. Paradoxically, because the concept of a medium of communication is richest when the linguistic signifier for media as such is lacking in some way, the philosophical and cultural preconditions of media discourse become a process of mediation in its own right. I know there's a lot to um, catch on to, so let me illustrate what I mean. Over the last decades of the Manchu Qing dynasty, writers, intellectuals, reformers, and revolutionaries grappled with media without knowing they were doing so. 
They could not know because just as in the case of the etymology of English, the English term media, the Chinese term meiti, referring to technical media, did not exist till after the popularization of communicative devices in the early 20th century. Before that time, individual devices in the archives I look at was simply referred to as this or that machine, qi or qi. Indeed, the ubiquitous and differentiated machines that characterized the experience of this period were on the minds of many Chinese, among them the customs clerk Li Gui, a member of the court's delegation to the historic 1876 Centennial Exhibition of the World's Fair in Philadelphia, USA. If the entire cosmos, Li writes, had turned out to be one vast machine, Ji, Di Li, dazzled by the displays in the machinery hall of his visit, exclaimed, there was no place especially carved out for media in his records. Because the steely progress of the industrial revolution, second industrial revolution impressed this visitor with the potential to transform production, all machines were to fulfill one basic purpose, to benefit the Chinese people. Even though observers such as Li knew little about technical media as such, their writings generated discursive and dynamic processes of mediation between emerging conceptions of the old and the new, China and the West, and between culture, tradition, and technology. The late 19th century thus witnessed a gradual convergence between more intangible mediations and their perceptibly heftier machinic counterparts, and this is when the media question was beginning to emerge. The passage below, excerpted from Li's travel diary, offers such an opening. As I wandered about gazing at these machines, I wanted to single them out and write about those with real utility. But I was hindered by the complexity of their workings, which proved impossible to recount. The group of visitors were large, the movements of the machines deafening. I could not often hear them speak. The interpreter too could not but distort things in conveying the final points. For all these reasons, I could only report on those things I could see and inquire about with ease. When I first shared this passage with an eminent senior scholar, she dismissed it by pointing out there's no media in it at all. What are you doing here? Indeed, no media device barring anachronism appears in this excerpt. Even in subsequent paragraphs of Huang Yodi Chui Xinglu, when the author mentions the typewriter and the glass etching machine, he barely distinguishes them from manufacturing and production machines for digging coal, pumping water, or forging and smelting. To them, to Lee, they're all wondrous innovations worthy of documentation in terms of the cost, speed of production, the amount of space they occupy, so on and so forth. Certainly, his account of the typewriter, as scholars have noted, makes for an impressive earliest um, Chinese contact with the inscriptive technology. But even the communicative functions of the printing press, typewriter, and the glass etching machine appear garbled. As far as the customs clerk is concerned, all kinds of machines produce noise. The industrial machines for 
coal def have produced deafening sounds that he can't hear through them. The typewriter and the glass etching machine do not inscribe Chinese characters, and Lee did not read English. No media device, not even one recognized as such, mediates on its own. Media happens when communicative processes meet with history and social meanings. When the bodily functions of hearing and speech, writing, translation, and print, and the machines for these recording these processes overlap and interact with historical context and social meanings, including non-meanings and noise. Long story short, the stone in the wireless is able to become a history of the late Qing, is able to become a work of comparative media theory and attempts to sketch a media history. All these three things, because I learned to stop worrying about needing to find the vocabulary neatly transferable to media discourse in the English language and love instead the explosive field of the late Qing lexicon from which I can develop a theory of mediation germane to my historical context. I learned to stop worrying about media so much and started to love mediation. The Stone and the Wireless argues that media do not mediate between this and that thing, between the individual and the larger collective, between the nation and the world, between the institution and its people, so on and so forth, without first mediating between communicative devices and their more discursive significations. This is in short what media do. The last piece of the puzzle, so-called, only came when I realized that precisely because the late Qing men and women were recording, transmitting, and attempting their versions of connectivity to use the three terms that structure my book, and they were using these three terms without a clear conception of media, they were and could be considered as media theorists before their time. So Ji, Chuan, Zhuan, and Tong are the three kind of key terms that structure the chapters of the book. Media records, media transmits, and seeks to interconnect. These three key terms became the organizing headings. Each of them denote a technical function, Ji, Chuan, or Zhuan, and Tong. They also refer to the written genres of records, of biographies, and dynastic histories, as in Tongshi. Explicitly in its organizational structure, as well as heuristics, the Stone and the Wireless came to embody the dynamics between technical functions and discursive significations. I alternate between non-fictional and fictional genres. So I look at diaries, letters, actual telegrams, photographs, biographies, newspapers, and also poetry and science fiction, in order to foreground the mutual interactions between forms, historical meanings, and technical media, both real and imagined. The stone refers to the mythological surface bearing the inscribed records of history, but it also signals the important material used in the lithographic process. The wireless figures prefigures late Qing urban culture's obsessions with interconnectivity through readings of electricity and neuroanatomy. 
the stone and the wireless, not from the stone to the wireless, contest the supposed teleology of technological progress and other related conceptual oppositions between the primitive and the modern, the visible and the invisible, and materiality and immateriality. So I hope to give you a background and overview of the project. And now let's go into, oops, um, part two. The Stone and the Wireless thus bookend a long personal journey, but it's a properly intermediary chapter, one that both connects but also divides the first and last two chapters, which actually walk all the talk of mediation. The Chinese term for media, what's going on with this, sorry. Yeah, the Chinese term for media, meiti or meijie, is rooted in the female go-between or matchmaker. The earliest etymology traces to Shi Jing's Fei Wo Qian Qi's Wu Liang Mei. Even more so than the Latin middle or medius, the Chinese etymology suggests that the intermediary of sexual relation, marriage, and gender difference is thoroughly feminine. The figure of the stone derives from the mythological tale of Nuwan Stone, which I examine in full detail in chapter two. As legend has it, Nuwan made humans out of clay, and when the flood threatened to um, destroy humankind, she galvanized uh, five colored stones to mend heaven. And we all know how this story is um, adapted by Cao Xueqing for Honglomong. What we cannot forget or bears reminding is that the origin of the stone myth is essentially a technological story and is one of a woman's tool. In addition to the late Qing uh, writer Wu Jianren's adaptation of Cao Xueqing's adaptation of Nuwa, another contemporary science fiction, The Stone of the Goddess Nuwa or Nuwa Shi, transforms what is primarily a woman's instrument into the instrumentalization of women. We can say that Lei Qing narratives retool femininity for a stronger, more scientific Chinese future by recording it, as we know, on the stony surface. Early Chinese feminism, as scholars have all pointed out, took on an unusually dominant male tenor. Many male writers celebrated the image of the revolutionary woman and promoted the usefulness of modern science to radicalize her. Jing Tianhe, to give a good example, in his earlier treatise, Nu Jie Zhong, encouraged women to rid themselves of folk magic and superstition, since modern cranial metry showed that women were as clever as men. Once educated in modern science, Jin argues, women could accelerate Chinese, uh, China's progress, especially if they were willing to resort to violence. The subtitle of my book is Mediating China. The problem I want to raise today is this. If early Chinese feminism helped mediate nation building in the loose sense of the term of instrumentalize, what do we do with the role of women as mediators, as the means to an end of Chinese nationalism rather than an end in themselves? Once formulated this way, the intuitive answer would be to decry the injustice of female instrumentality, to admonish techniques and its violent association with instrumentality. But I'm not really a fan of such intuitive answers. 
um, it's easy to claim that nothing or no one should be just a media, just a tool, just a means to an end. But what if it's precisely the dynamics between the literal and the figurative medium, between the literal um, medium as used in the technical sense and the more figurative sense of a means or a stepping stone or instrument, what if this is this precise dynamics which comes close to mediation and come close to what we can conceive of as just? Bring the woman question into conversation with the media question required, like everything I've experienced in writing this book, a very circuitous route. On the one hand, Scholars such as Joan Judge, Tani Barlow, Amy D. Dooling, among others, have criticized the subsumption of femininity within the national question. But they do so without relating this phenomenon to women's use of technology. On the other hand, studies of early Chinese media in the period that I look at have paid scant attention to gender and sexual difference. The archives that they look at indeed betray such a lacuna, the problem I faced was how could then I excavate the intersection between late Qing femininity and communicative technologies when records of women using early 20th century technologies such as the telegraph, the phonograph, the telephone, and early photography were far, few and far between. My entry point into this vexed instrumentality surprisingly was poetry. I started researching on Liang Qichao's call for a new poetic revolution, or Shi Jie in 1899, a year before his more famous declaration of Xin Xiaoshuo. Throughout the book, I have a penchant for the literal. I started to think more about this idea of the poetic medium. And I became curious as to what we literary scholars comfortably assume as the poetic medium and what happens to that term. What kind of inflection does it take when poems actually involve technology as its content? Right? In return, I needed to know how the mere theme of technical media changes when a technical theme informs the materiality of the poetic form. And within the Chinese poetic tradition, I found lyricism or shu qing with its evocations of the feminine help unpack this women and media intersection. Women's growing prominence in this period of intense political and social cultural reform saw the specific reconstruction of feminine lyricism as mediums of social change, especially in a genre of life-renting, celebrating virtuous and patriotic women. This is one definition of the female medium as a channel or a conduit for the nation state. Tran, of course, also signifies tran to transmit. Transmissions thus mobilized another literal, more literal understanding of media as a means or intermediary in material communicative processes. It is this tran, this other meaning, which demands differently lyrical depictions of the Chinese women and her engagement with new media technologies of her time.
If the problem is that an overwhelmingly nationalist discourse risks turning women into pure mediums, pure tools, my wager today is to follow such a perverse instrumentality to the letter in the hopes of disrupting it. I don't have time to discuss my full chapter, chapter three, which begins by examining the series of poems Jing Bie Li by Huang Zunxian. Um, I look at Huang because Liang singles out Huang Zunxian's poems in his 1899 proclamation of a new exemplar of new Chinese poetry. Huang Zunxian's um, poem, and this is one excerpt of Jing Bie Li, is a very interesting, innovative verse because it focuses on how the female speaker of the poems express her sentimentality for her departed lover when encountering the telephone, the telegraph, and the postal service. So Huang is working from um, the tradition of the parting poetry, but updating it right with these new technologies. Although one can say that Huang, like many other male poets, construed the feminine speaker as overly sentimental, overly effusive, um, I found interesting that the woman in this in these poems become a user of new technologies and is very unimpressed by them. Right. So femininity makes her particularly sensitive in registering both older and newer forms of communication. So the letter, um, the telegraph, so on and so forth. Um, and the lyrical medium's ironic mediation, far from reflecting the female speaker's position, thoroughly interrogates the sense of contemporaneity or the now, the jing, in the title of Huang's poems, through technical imageries produced and circulated by the poetic form. Moreover, what distinguishes modern parting or Jing Bie Li from previous parting poems is not that it generates feelings about machines, but it exposes how feelings work, how there's a mechanism to feelings. There is a technical condition that make possible sentimental longings including the transmission and the preservation of such sentiments. Again, this is just a short uh, preview of what I do with Huang Huang's very complex poems. So my gist is that the problem arises not when women, not when women's feelings and technology are brought together. There's a problem when they are thought too much apart. So my unlikely slogan, if there is one, is let's retool the feeling woman. Let's repurpose her. Precisely because early Chinese feminism have not made enough noise about female sentimentality. To reiterate, a reassessment of the women question through media lens does not ignore instrumentality, but confronts it straight on. Ignoring how women have been instrumentalized really only attends to one part of the richly polysemantic word, tran and dran. Again, what do I mean by this? Early 20th century women's journals saw the rise of a new genre, photographic portraits accompanying short biographies, xiao dran, of famous women. 
Women's biographies, of course, accounts of conduct or xing zhuan, of course, take back to the long biographical tradition and were traditionally formulated to mythologize stories of women who commit suicide in the name of chastity or who dedicate their lives to serving their parents-in-law um, in the name of some celibate widowhood. Such zhuan are usually commissioned by a deceased woman's relative for the purpose of eulogizing conventionally feminine virtues. The shorter biographies in late Qing journals updated this Zhuan tradition to portray contemporary women from all around the world known for their professional and political acumen. So Chou Jing's um, newspaper, Zhongguo Nubao, introduced readers to fearless women such as the Russian anarchist Sofia Perovskaya and the French revolutionary Madame Roland, uh, both of these women who laid down their lives for the nation. Features on Florence Nightingale and on Margaret Fuller, the American journalist, appear in the feminist Tokyo-run journal Zhongguo Xinyujie. Similarly, Nu Xuebao published biographies of women heroes of the world, and Qing Yibao published Yang Qichao's biography of Kang Aide, the first woman doctor of China in 1898. So these are just... Um, some of the images, while the photographic medium literally intersecting the more figurative meaning of women as medium, the former enables the latter's patriotic transmissions. So what I'm saying, this hybrid medium of having xiaozhuan, so these photographs um, printed on the late Qing journals or newspapers will accompany a short biography of the women. And they're again, always highlighted for how patriotic and how dominant they are. To grasp this political phenomenon, also as a media phenomenon, we need more of this other meaning of Chuan as Chuan in yellow on the right side. We need to multiply this meaning of transmission in Chuan in life writing the techniques of biographies and autobiographies. We need to understand more of the techniques of feelings, specifically of how women use media to communicate feelings that then no longer serve the ends of patriotism or the nation state. This is the disruptive part that I was talking about. Nothing or no one should be just a media, but perversely, women's representations of what media do or mediate, bring us closest to what is just. And who best serve as the best, sorry, as a feminine exemplar than Chou Jing, who is one of the, or arguably the most celebrated example of Lei Qing heroic feminism, or heroine. My chapter examines Chou Jing's autobiographical Zi Ti Xiao Zhao, translated as self-inscription on the photograph, 1906, in order to challenge the conventional biographical practices of female exemplarity and its codification of female sentimentality when poetic form crosses paths with the photographic medium. While Ziti Xiaozhao belongs to the late Qing hybrid genre of Ziti Xiaoxiang and Xiaozhuan, it radically departs from the celebration of female sainthood or heroism. Rather, Ziti Xiaozhao constructs an autobiography of past, present, and future selves as models for both emulation and denigration. 
This is the photograph taken in 1906 in the Jiang Liutang Photographic Studio in Shaoxing after Xiu Jing came back from her study in Japan. It presents her in a traditional Han Chinese men's vest and gown, as you can see. Now, this photograph um, has been the verse that Chu Jing actually pens at the back. So Chu Jing's seven-syllable regulated verse opens with an apostrophe addressed to her barely recognizable author. This is because her masculine self in the photograph resides in a woman's body as martial bones concealed by a phantom or illusory female exteriority. Therefore, the Huan in the second line. In a future vista, the speaker continues, may her physical form assume more authenticity or Zhen. In line with this Buddhist message contemplating truth and illusion and the transmigration of souls, which most interpreters of Ziti Xiao Zhao follows, Chiu Jing's femi feminine self has transcended this world and is up to the relative permanence of the photograph self, implies the poem, to articulate the former's departure. This is pretty apparent from the reading of the poem, but can an analysis of the relation between the lyrical address and the photographed image offer a renewed perspective into this established interpretation? Here, Charles Saunders' Peirce's concept of indexicality might be useful. So according to Peirce's index, um, there's often two components. The DXs is something that does not leave material trace. So this can be um, often referred to as language, uh, spoken language, or it can be that one example is your image in the mirror, right? Once you leave the mirror, you, your image is not there anymore, except uh, unless it's Halloween. Um, there's also the material trace or the photographed image, which does leave material um, print behind, right? So a lot of scholars of photography make use of PERS um, indexicality to distinguish the photograph from the DXs. But both also coexist, as I will explain. The poem's use of the explicit pronoun I or Yu functions according to the DXical part of language. There are not two, but three selves. There is the first person I, whose former acquaintances the photograph image encounters. There's the photograph image and the self who is actually no longer present in the physical sense. The concluding line reveals this third self, the enlightened I, no longer caught up in the dust of existence. These three selves in turn move between different temporalities. The speaking self or the first person I belongs to the present mode as observed, fleeting and transient, compared with the final self who has transcended the earthly realm. Out of the trio, it is the photographed Chu Jing in male dress who is caught up in the middle of the Buddhist cycle of existence, rebirth and transcendence. Interestingly, Chiu Jing's masculine image, the one we see on the photograph, in the photograph, has to inform those who used to know her that the old Chiu Jing has since departed from the material world. 
In so doing, it uncannily embodies Peirce's definition of the photographic index as trace. It's a material residue formed by a photochemical reaction, whose mechanical reproducibility of a past moment, unable to be scrubbed off as dust, finds itself back in the internal cycle of wretched existence. But focusing on the verse, self-inscription also assumes the dual dimensions of the photographic index. How is the verse able to assume the photographic index as both an iconic trace and also linguistically as an arbitrary reference or the axis? I will explain. Chiu poetry written behind the photograph engages with issues of the real and the illusory and conceptions of the self, not just through the Buddhist interpretation, but also through the two unique mediums that contribute to the dynamic print culture of late Qing China. Through the verbal medium, the speaking self, the first person Yu, and the transient internal I of the last line interact with the photographic image. And the photograph does this in return. Whereas language's symbolic sign allude to the photographic image as something that existed in a physical reality, the image also elucidates, quid pro quo, the poem's more ephemeral and ambiguous relation to its referent, to a dissented self in this process of observing itself. Now I want to focus your attention to the slightly blurred image Notice that Chiu Jing gazes straight at the camera, her eyes directed ever so slightly to her left. With the upright standing posture perpendicular to the folded umbrella in her left hand and the potted plant placed on the tall decorative stand to her right, her left index finger extending horizontally across the umbrella handle makes a horizontal plane matching that of the surface of the decorative stand. Her finger points to a space away from, while still contiguous, to the subject's bodily form. The finger neither fully embodies the exhaustibility of the symbol, nor the abundance of the icon, yielding instead the tension between the two instances of the index as the axis and as trace. The finger in this iconic image directs the viewer to the poetic medium and its power to supplement the physical integrity of the photochemical residue. Yet its proximity to the body reminds us that the photographic self in Chiu Jing's poem perseveres paradoxically in order to attest to the transience of forms. In their mutual referentiality, Photograph and poem outline the physical shape of Chiu Jing's identity, only to obscure it together. Chiu Jing's poem bleeds into her image, referencing the other medium's physical properties as well as its limits. The, female, the figure of the female go-between may becomes an unwieldy biographical model or example. I say unwieldy because the poem's third line Yang Wu Jie Shi Qi Zhen denotes the stirring of the speaker's emotions intensifying as she looks up, presumably from the photo toward the ceiling above. But this is a, a strange kind of um, sigh. 
I feel the poem begins, if you recall, with the speaker's apostrophe to the photographed image, where she exclaims that she does not recognize this masculine self. The open sentiment is thus one of misrecognition. But the poem goes on momentarily in this middle juncture to heave a sigh of lament before the poem ends on the recognition of the illusory nature of all forms. So first it starts with misrecognition. Uh, the middle poem uh, effuses a kind of um, a sigh and then it ends with recognizing the illusory nature of all emptiness or all forms. The poem exudes regret in encountering Chu Jing's masculine self too late, Xiang Feng Heng Wan, before the poem then resigns to the meaningless of all ideals. At the last instance, even the masculine Chu Jing in the visual um, photograph, despite all of its concrete materiality, is unreliable. Hence this jie, this sigh or exasperation, is really a lament on the futility of lament. What mediates the index as trace and as the axis in both photo and text is precisely femininity's lyrical traces that have been erased in the name of nation building. In the case, in this case, the trace of a sigh that does not communicate or exemplify much except for the illusory nature of images and of communication itself. I believe that it is for this simple fact that the speaker sighed and that this makes the sigh a mechanical sentiment priceless in and of itself. It is a lyrical transmission that falls short of becoming a legend. It is a trend that may not become biographical as a celebrated biography. Even after Chiu Jing's death, the gender politics of her martyrdom continues to enforce the strong grip that early Chinese feminism had on the communication of women's feelings. Biographical accounts of Chiu Jing after her death continue to promote legends similar to the martyr's own promotion of exemplary women, both traditional and modern, during Chiu Jing's lifetime. What most accounts miss is precisely what I've been suggesting in my reading of Ziti Xiaozhao through the photographic poetic medium. Both the masculine modern Chojing and the traditional feminine self are merely reproducible models, imprints. What she feels, she feels for herself as one version of design within a series without the need for moralized emulation. And this is the idea of a technical model or an example. It is really one example among others. My point is not to see a woman like Chiu Jing represent her gender consciousness in a medium, but to show that Ziti Xiaozhao radically posits gendered consciousness as a lyrical medium. Chiu Jing becomes then a rather useless, what I call bad model of the feeling woman, whose lyricism, instead of being channeled toward heroism and martyrdom, effuses for itself and effuses gently. Apologies for my... Precisely because the exemplary woman 
is only one technical model among others. Gender is more than simply one example or metaphor among other metaphors of technologies. That a literal or technical meaning can be more subversive than its figurative employment guides the overall ethos of my book, which as my talk comes to an end, um, I realize I'm still discovering new things as um, um, or new failures as I'm talking. I continue to dwell on the dynamics between larger communicative processes and technical media and the human lives that underpin and override them. I continue to rest with this problem of how best to narrate a life that attends to the double sense of transmission as both Tran and Dran. Whereas the history of science and technology are filled with biographies and autobiographies of typically male inventors of media machines, I hope to have made a small contribution to more experimental notions of lyrical media experienced by lesser known users, lesser known transmitters, such as Chu Jing. I've learned so much from Professor Wang and also uh, Ray Charles' works on the late Qing pathos of male sentimentality. Here, I hope to bring into focus on how Qing manifests alternatively through material carriers and specific historical contexts. In my larger chapter, I also talk about the the role of affect theory um, and as well as Simondon's uh, philosophies of technology and how they could kind of converse with um, Chinese media. Again, uh, I'm happy to talk more about that. I've tried to show that Chu Jing's complex representations of the self ends up representing the mediation of older and newer media. Indeed, Ziti Xiaozhao prompts the possibility of the laments or lyrical size of technical processes. Insofar as the mechanism of feelings in Huang Zunxian's Xinbieli and in uh, Chu Jing's poem, I, in my larger chapter, I also discuss Wu Jing's poem. Insofar as these works help communicate early 20th century gender consciousness, lyricism ceases to operate apart from the technologies it represents, thereby emerging as lyrical media, simply put. Like the figure of the exemplary female conduit on whom it dwells, this chapter connects the first half of the book with two chapters organized around qi and the third and fourth chapter organized around tong. At the same time, this intermediary chapter also turns away from the first and second halves. I realized that women as intermediary has her own stories to tell about technology. And yet I confess too that most of the voices in my book are resoundingly masculine. So this intermediary chapter is also one that fails to connect. It nonetheless attempts to retrieve women's relationships to technologies in ways that have not been co-opted by masculine nationalist ideas. My conclusion returns once more to examine the cultural appropriation of women's affinity to connect and communicate in our present moment, specifically in Chen Qiufan's 2013 novel, The Waste Tide or Huang Chao. 
I examine how Wastide pulls its readers headlong into violent representations of women's bodies and struggle with capitalism, problems that of course magnify in the age of um, late capitalism or digital capitalism. For all of the novel's Baroque dedication to algorithmic functions, data tracking, augmented reality scenarios, the sci-fi actually really relies on the traditional figure once again, of the female medium, May, who carries the true cost of Huang Chao's high-tech overdrive. Huang Chao's female protagonist, Xiaomi, re-evokes my assessment of the instrumentality of female lyricism that I have been discussing today. Xiaomi feels so much for the underclass and is her emotional sensitivity that makes her especially ideal as a martyr. For these reasons, the figure of the feeling woman in late Qing women's journals and early feminist writings continues to cast a long shadow on 21st century China's post-human imaginations. On the surface, the stone and the wireless has prioritized seemingly less overtly political aspects of late 19th and early 20th century writings. Not because nation building and the search for the perfect citizen are uninteresting or unimportant. Far from that. But because these issues have often appropriated other mediums, both literal and figurative, both political and technical, to achieve their ends. Until we understand the complex interplays between the signified forms of media and their physical material forms, starting with the deceptively simple question of what is it that media do? Until we understand that, the work of mediation will continue to be unevenly and unjustly distributed. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Shaolin, for a wonderful talk. There's so many um, very insightful reading, actually, of uh, selected poems of the late Qing um, era. And of course, it was a really a pleasant surprise that you uh, um, bring Chen Qiufan's um, waist tight to bear upon your argument of a lyrical medium um, of the late Qing moment. So this is a really... Uh, a, a wonderful uh, sort of um, a, sort of a medium. I mean, your 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 talk, right? Um, the past and, and, the, and the present, and of course, I uh, personally was most fascinated with what you weigh. Um, you argue about the uh, the middle chapter uh, as a kind of a um, medium, so to speak, uh, between the first and the second part, and then you very skillfully um, bring your coda or the conclusion chapter. Um, um, to uh, again to bear upon the uh, quote unquote unfinished uh, mediality or the process of a medium uh, in the middle chapter. I think the, the book itself is very performative in the sense of um, of uh, demonstrating your your argument about this whole idea um, of a medium and uh, and the mediality. This is a, such a fascinating talk. Thank you so much, Shaoling. And um, really, uh, I believe um, um, uh, the audience may have some questions um, to consult with you. 
And at this point, I would like to invite uh, whoever um, is online uh, just sending your, your questions by, uh, by typing your question and sending your question into the Q&A box. Um, at this point, I would like to uh, invite my colleague, uh, Jilly, to, uh, to ask the first question. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor Ma, for for this wonderful um, book and talk. Um, I was uh, I was sort of finding creative moments and really rich moments on every page, and it's it's a really smart and very surprising, and also just very creative book. So, um, congratulations on that. And I I, I really admire this um, uh, effort to also build a conversation between media studies and and China studies. I and also not not just applying the insights from um, uh, uh, sort of more trendy media theories and then to the Chinese context, but also in a way excavating Chinese media theories. So um, I have to, um, I have so many questions. I'm wondering where to start. I, maybe maybe I'll start by when I saw the title of your book for the first time, I didn't know what it was about at all, but I was just so intrigued that, you know, I thought stone, okay, stone age or like, really ancient times and then wireless I was I've been working on radio so I thought okay but then the radio wasn't invented yet in this period so then I looked I saw the dates so I I, I started um and then and then as I got into it I realized that oh it's it is a very about a very specific uh historical period yet it also seems to have the potential to extend way before and way after um, so I, I, I was just wondering why you chose this late Qing period and not, is it the materials or do you think that the similar methodology can be applied to earlier periods? I mean, was it, was it important that there was the introduction of Western technology coming in? Because you, you seem to be using the word media uh, sometimes as technology, and but as a particular kind of technology, is it uh, the same as technology? Because also, when you mentioned uh, no one should just be a medium, uh, I, it, it somehow reminded me of the Confucian saying, a gentleman should not be a utensil. Are you, is there equivalence also between medium and a utensil? And then the, the, the term may, I guess, uh, in terms of like a matchmaker or the, the feminine may. Uh, I, I also wondered because I, I, I was so intrigued like reading about Liang Qichao writing about newspapers in this period. As, mm -hmm. So, um, and and then I, I and so I, I got a little bit into like how, how late reformers were talking about newspapers, which was also a new, but I, I didn't actually come across a lot about like the more the, the, the traditional types of media we think about when we talk about communication media or mass media, the, the, the beginning of newspapers. Um, and the chapter that you're presenting, you introduce genre of poetry, biography, and photography. But I wonder what is then the role of something like newspapers, which like, I guess, late Qing reformers were talking a lot about. They're so maybe their conception of media would be newspaper or um, does that have a role in you know, in when, when you say that they were talking about media without knowing they were talking about media, but what about newspapers? And mm -hmm. So I don't know, that's quite a handful, but, you know, feel free to address any element of... Yeah, thank you for these questions. I will start with the time period or the title you were first evoking um, as to 1861 and, you know, 190, you know, I have to forget, 1906, that's right. 
Um, it's definitely my archive that determined this um, time period, but I also wanted the bookends of 1861-1906 to depart from the usual conception of the aging, starting with 100 Days Reform and ending with 1911, of course. So I wanted to go away from the more well-known dates. And I also was, um, and I explain this a little bit in the intro that 1861 was also the beginning of the Yotranbu, uh, so the Postal Service Office, and um, 1906 is really just the end of my um, um, last chapter, which is New Tales of Mr. Bracadocio. So I did want to intentionally end before the mature development of um, certain media technologies. I wanted to end before um, the proper beginning of cinema, for example, in China. And I wanted to end before the proper beginnings of the phonograph industry, which phonographs were of course coming in, but definitely not you know, as popular as it would soon take. Uh, it ended before radio, it ended before the history of the typewriter, more properly speaking. Um, and even the more, um, of course it, with the telegraph that was already um, happening and photography, there was already uh, a lot of talk about linguistic reforms as we know, but I think the period is purposefully framed to be, um, in, in the late Qing period, but not too late, if that makes sense. And so it was indeed the period of the import of Western technologies and Western ideas. And there's no way that the project would have um, been possible without this period of uh, Westernization, not just because of the technologies it brought, but because the very contestation between Western technology versus Western idea, which is precisely the Tao Qi distinction um, that followed from the Confucian idea of Qi uh, was contested, right? So the Wanqing were so, uh, intellectuals were so um, divided over how much of Western technology to import, but they were all the more divided over how much of Western ideas to actually assume or even recognize. So it's one thing to borrow qi, it's another to forsake our own Tao, right? So this is why um, the whole Tao qi distinction is one of the kind of lexicon that helped me think about media mediation. Now, even though qi is not media, you know, is a kind of utensil or a tool. And Tao is not, um, you know, has such a rich philological, you know, um, meanings. It's, I'm not never arguing that media can be transposed to any of these terms, but I'm really interested in the process that what is seen as material, physical, technological, um, and functional, right? As Qi stands for, is more acceptable than what is more primary, what is more philosophical, what is more fundamental, which Tao represents. And I'm asking myself then, isn't that precise dynamic something which media help process, 
right? Because indeed, newspapers and writing and forms of records, uh, whether they're on stones or through um, telegraph signals, are all messages that transmit meaning. But besides the message part, right? As we know from Lewin's uh, tired truism, there's also the medium part, which is the material part. And so the Stone and the Wireless um, try to bring up this late chain dichotomy between what is more fundamental and primary and what is more secondary and what is really utensil-like, right? Instrumental-like and think about the two as processes of mediation. And this, I argue, brings an idea of what media meant for the late Qing men and women. Now, your last question, you know, follows nicely with that with regards to print. And, you know, I, I'm obviously indebted to all the scholarship on uh, print culture in the late Qing. And of course, print is phenomenal, was phenomenal, and was indispensable to the intellectual life and the urban cultural life. Um, scholars, um, have also used the you know, media sphere, the term, to talk about the circulation of media during that time, the kind of visual uh, impact of seeing uh, lithographies and so on and so forth. And of course, the huge study that goes into the with the illustrations accompanying the print, um, so on and so forth. So having um, you know, been, having learned from all these scholarship, I am also really aware that I am reading things off print, right? As in all the information that I'm getting from uh, how the late Qing thought about the phonograph, how the late Qing thought about the telephone, all the illustrations I track of the phonograph and Edison and all that are from the late Qing print journals. So it would be impossible to assess um, these representations of newer media on the older media, which is um, print. So I'm, I, I try to be cognizant and I try to be conscious of the fact that I'm reading media representations of or from a, a, an already media set of prints. Right. So it becomes like media all the way down, which then becomes really hard to articulate without just sounding overtly repetitive. Um, so, yeah. So nonetheless, having said so, I'm not focusing on print precisely because I am interested in these early technologies that print culture then tries to write about and record. I'm really interested in how then the telephone, the telegraph, the phonograph, um, the photograph, um, and this weird kind of very early version of, of the wireless or naodian, which is really a brain electricity, come to be inscribed and written about. Right? So while these things are not just um, discursive, meaning there were these encounters with the telephone, they were actual, you know, as we know, telegraph usage 
and it really erupted over the Boxer Rebellion, right? The, the role that the Mbao played. Uh, we cannot dismiss the material um, importance of these technologies, but we also cannot ignore the interesting twists and turns these new technologies take when they have been represented, right? So again, we're back to that tension between discursive representations and the actual technical example. So if I can give a further example of, of what I mean is Guo um, Songtao, the first Chinese ambassador to um, the Great Britain, he wrote about his witnessing of Thomas Edison in London demonstrating the phonograph. But records show that Edison was not in London at all that year, and we know everything about where Edison was. So he saw someone else. Um, that's the first kind of strange thing. The phonograph he wrote about, he, he wrote about as uh, Liu Shenji, right? Which is Liu is to record. But in his description of the phonograph, where he talks about the diaphragm and the electrical coil, which does resemble how the phonograph works, he then uses the sound when he, when he tries to talk about how the sound was being uh, uh, passed, he uses the word chuan a lot. Now, what that means is that, and from uh, my research of Leiqing lexicon, chuan shenji was very much simultaneously used for the telephone. And um, the phonograph, which is Liu Shenji, in many descriptions of the machine became interchangeably confused. So there's debate whether Guo Songtao indeed saw the phonograph or if some have argued, maybe the telephone. And in any case, this kind of miswiring, right? And mistranslation, but also neologisms are really key to understanding the recording of, of sounds and also then the, how does the recording of sound um, interact or come up against the recording of an ambassador's journey, you know, which is the kind of uh, yoji, right? In the yoji tradition. So yeah, I've talked so much, but thank you for those questions. Okay, um, well, we are still waiting for um, some of our audience uh, sending their questions and particularly, I think, um, Jess and my students who um, have expressed their enormous interest in this book, probably now, probably got too shy and too scared by Professor Ma's uh, presentation uh, just now. And uh, probably they're still cogitating on what they want to ask. But I do actually have a, a quite a number of questions for you, Shaolin. Um, to begin with, this is a, just a, an, um, an observation. That is, I was uh, very fascinated by your um, uh, etymological engagement with the Chinese character, Mei, right? And you talk about this as a gendered um, the subjectivity of matchmaker and so on and so forth. Um, of course, on the other hand, uh, this may also brings to mind um, one of the ancient divinities, uh, Gao Mei, I think probably you have mentioned somewhere in your book. Um, this Gao Mei is a sort of a pre, um, sort of a predecessor, so to speak, of, uh, of uh, all uh, the, female divinities um, 
favoring um, productivity, procreation, and so on and so forth. So May is, um, is, a, is a very productive and also productive in a, in a gendered sense. I thought this will probably um, further help your argument about this um, um, uh, gendered dimension of media and mediality, which has been um, overlooked by, by scholars. Mm -hmm. And then particularly in the, in the middle part of your book, uh, you uh, deliberately uh, introduced uh, a couple of uh, female figures and talking about the lyrical medium, um, not just merely as a kind of materialized or instrumentalized uh, form, of a transmission uh, or um, uh, recognition or inscription, but um, this um, this uh, lyrical medium embodied by by women in general, choking and so on, as a kind of uh, conduit of uh, of uh, affection or affect, as a kind of vehicle through which a different kind of a possibilities uh, may suddenly blow out, may um, derail somewhere else. We don't know. So in that sense, I, I think the, uh, the middle part of the book is really very exciting because it, uh, in a way, of course, deconstruct um, the established um, uh, notion or concept about the media studies as such. And you really wanted to uh, sort of uh, in, 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 in live in and uh, revitalize this concept of um, medium and mediality. Now, um, the question, a lyrical medium, and of course, I appreciate your your wonderful interpretation of um, of Chou Jing's um, poem "Ziqi Xiao Zhao," and of course, um, um, uh, your reference to Huang Zunxian, the Jin Bieli, a very famous poem. Um, now, come to think of the genre of uh, of a lyrical poetry, do you think it's a gendered, or you think uh, here a lyrical medium? Um, in its own right, is already mediated, uh, generally speaking. Um, by that, I mean, um, you know, this uh, long tradition in pre-modern Chinese poetry, um, this, uh, this, say, theatrical personification issue, a masquerading and so on, xiang cao mei ren and so on. So in Huang Zunxian's poem uh, here, we actually have a, a male voice, so to speak, right? This is really a case of ventriculism, uh, speaking on behalf of his wife. Um, and then in Chou Jing's case, the other way around, this is a woman uh, uh, in the guise of a gentleman and speaking to himself or herself, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I was very fascinated that there was yet another layer of your argument mm -hmm. in terms of a lyrical medium. So mm -hmm. could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because of yeah. course, later on you talked about the Hong Lo Meng and so on and so forth, Shi Tou Jie and so on. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So um, that's my question, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, David. These are great, great questions. I have definitely not thought about the reverse of ventriloquism, right, that Chiu performs as well. Um, yeah, and the problem with uh, male poets writing on behalf of women and therefore uh, theatrical and performing a kind of a female voice is so heavily critiqued. And Huang Zunxian doesn't, you know, um, is not excused from this as well. But I do, and um, the readings of his poem of Jing Bie Li have also pointed that out. And I agree with that, but I also think that his particular 
uh, performance of female sentimentality is actually muted or at least mediated by the female speakers kind of um, being very unimpressed with the new technologies. So that that doesn't change the fact that he wrote as a woman, but it does change, it does give um, the woman user, if you like, right, a skepticism, which is a little strange. Like she just doesn't think all these work, you know, all these new technologies of sending a photograph to her male lover of the of the telephone pole or the telegraph poles that she doesn't even recognize. So in the last verse of Jing Bieli, for example, she uses the more primitive form of uh right? So she drifts to that's very interesting. Part. Yeah, and that yeah. is most effective. That's yeah. most effective because she yeah. then travels uh like a zoom. She just just yeah. goes and appears in the lover's bedroom. Right. So that's the most effective. So, yeah. So there's definitely that. And then um, with uh, I'll go back to the Gaomei observation, because I, I think um, I, I've learned quite a bit from that insight, too. Now, with Cho Jing speaking as a man, speaking to her female self is indeed then um, uncannily or unintentionally uh, a subversion of the traditional lyric, male lyrical poet, but also a conforming to it, right? So it is Cho Jing's writing, but to what extent can we assume Cho Jing's gender when she herself contests her femininity? So yeah, that, that gender aspect is so ambivalent. And it's made more further ambivalent by the fact, at, at least through my reading, that um, we can't say for sure who the speaker is, as in the gender of the speaker, because there's so many, there are about, there are like at least two, and I argue three, right? The one who is speaking to the photograph, but also the one who is neither speaking to the photograph, nor the photograph male, but somebody who is left at the end of it all, the, the final one who transcended in a spiritual right. sense, right? So maybe it's the transcended one is the really ungendered, yeah. um, right? And if, yeah. and that would make the the Buddhist um, reading more strong. Yeah, thank you, David. That's yeah. Um, I mean, That's thank me. you. I mean, I just thought that, that, that this dimension may actually help even further our future study of a gender than um, the mm-hmm. lyrical medium around this period. Definitely um, the, uh, the discovering, quote unquote, uh, the Koji Tarotani's uh, kind of a question, this discovery of a woman um, mm. in early modern China, right? Suddenly mm. the, the figure um, appeared on, on the landscape and mindscape of, the, of, of, of China. I think that's definitely an interesting intervention with the current paradigm of um, of gender studies. Um, but on that note, I, I I just want to follow up by asking you uh, at the end of your book when you talk about the Xiaomi. Yeah. Um, again, the same question. Actually, I'm just trying to uh, to raise that question in a different context because um, uh, Xiaomi now um, partial human and the partial quote unquote, machine, right? Yeah. And again, the gender um, uh, issue uh, becomes, becomes problematic. And um, again, 
still the same issue about the lyrical medium. I, I, I see this as a very um, a powerful sort of a, a reference here. And it, I, 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 I probably would suppose that you could go even, even further to, to talk about this, um, this multiple um, dimensions of the final, final uh, gender interpolation uh, and, and Xiaomi's recognition of uh, her um, identity of woman, of yeah. the cyborg. Um, or a, um, a, 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 a sort of persecuted laborer or, or whatever. So I, I, I was um, pleasantly surprised by, by, by the conclusion of the book, um, ending with, uh, with uh, Huang Chao, so that's why, yeah. Okay, now I see a question uh, come in. So um, maybe I should uh, raise the, um, this is uh, by uh, Yang Renren. Um, I believe this is a professor Yang Renren now, right? Um, um, thanks for your illuminating talk, Shaolin. I am fascinated by Chojin's self-inscription and the photographic portray you showed today. To what extent do you think the invention of a photography challenges or displaces the dichotomy between the phantom and the real rooted in Chinese religious discourse? So now we have the issue of religion. Uh, can we read? The, um, the, uh, the physical form Chojin inhabits in that photo as a material surface rather than a performance of a masculinity. Thank you. Thank you for that great question. Yeah, so around 1860, photographic studios uh, began to pop up in Shanghai and coastal cities. Um, of course, you know, mainly uh, Western photographers uh, who then started training a little uh, more Chinese um, photographers who, who then assume the role of the photographer more and more. Um, it started with a lot of landscape photography, right? And when photography in China took on uh, human subjects, that's of course when things were controversial. Um, at first, it was more of random street photography of a lot of um, poor laboring Chinese men and women on the street. And of course, this when circulated back to the West became a demonstration of the kind of really... Um, as to the yellow pearl, right, of these kind of uh, workers who are nourished and all that. But then photography was onto portraits. And when it was established, you know, court officials and not forgetting, you know, it's how, how Cixi loved to be photographed herself. Portraiture then took on um, in China after photography was being introduced. So definitely this, there was a huge... Um, controversy or scare some you know uh historical historically true but some kind of played up i would say um about this idea of losing your soul you know like the way that photography was introduced anywhere in the world right so so i think uh, are you there jeff I'm here, so okay. I think I think Shaolin lost her connection. Shaolin lost uh, her connection. All right. And then so it maybe she will sign back. But she has to come back. Certainly, I'm experienced about this. All right, I just had it in this half this morning. So uh, um, thank you, everybody, for your patience. Um, Shaolin will be back very soon. Yeah.
And now the questions are pouring in and we are sort of running short of time, but anyway, we'll see. Or maybe, maybe we can share these questions with the audience first. So thank you, Hans Christopher yeah. Anderson. Uh, thank you for a great talk. I'm interested in your discussion of a Zhuan or Zhuan writers at the time. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Yan Fu, but also Chiu Jing uh, herself were famously obsessed with the ability of their writing to Zhuan or to Chuan. Chiu Jing argued for the importance of a public speaking, for example. Um, are there other examples of a how to chuan, right? Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. that's a good. Oh, there's Shaolin's back. <laughs> okay, Shaolin's back. <laughs> All right, Shaolin. Okay. Um, you are muted. I'll cut off. Yeah, I think the Wi Fi became spotty here. Sorry. Oh, no problem. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. Still, this kind of, yeah, um, yeah clunky. Uh, can you hear with us? Can you, you are with us. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. I think your images are frozen, but uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, but your images. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Please. Yeah. Okay. Finish your answer. Well, yeah. I will speak. Yeah, if I recall, if I can pick up. Oh yes. Yeah. So there was a lot of uh, scare that indeed you. We lost her again. I hope it's not my problem, Jeff. No, it's not. Um, but I, I wonder I so if, like, uh, if somehow <laughs> I, I was just going to tell Shaolin that her book also reminded me of Haunted Media, this book about the 19th century uh, spiritual mediums. And uh, yeah, at the same time. So I wonder if we offended the gods of media <laughs> that, <laughs> that as we we're talking about Chuan, that our ability to communicate mm -hmm. is has to be interrupted oh, i mean it's sort of all the <laughs> technical interruptions always remind us that we're living in this media yeah, age yeah, right? yeah yeah i really want to tell her that uh, she's not alone today and uh, certainly this is not our day um i, I think hello you're back still not very um I think the communication speaking about the media and the media connection here uh, today I mean, if your voice Hello. can come through, that should be fine too. We can hear you now, but uh, we we don't we don't see your image moving. But. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I will just speak then, and um, I think the internet is lagging. Yeah. Still, we can hear you. Uh, no, it's okay. Uh, it's probably okay. Yeah. Okay, I will just finish up. Um, yeah, so this idea of transhen uh, or xie zhen, and there was a lot of scare that the shen. Oh no. No. Okay. <gasps> Here we go. Okay. Okay, hopefully I can finish that. Yeah, so there was a lot of scare that photography will take away the soul, but there was also equally um, not even that much of reliance of photography uh, for depicting um, the real person's um, kind of soul. And this is why portraiture was still kind of favored as a okay. way of 
representing somebody because our historians have argued that uh, Chinese portraiture was never about realism, but it was really about transition. So when photography right. came along, similarly, people were not so much impressed by how real they looked. So if the formal portraitures still relied on xiang, So in fact, there was, uh, I, I was very intrigued by the tension between portraiture and photography and the tensions again with the kind of traditional medium and a newer reproducible medium. So yeah, uh, Professor Yang, your question, I don't know whether because of the interruptions, was there a second part to the photography? Um, um, probably uh, in, in the interest of the time, let me just quickly go over the other two questions. Maybe okay. um, you won't be able to answer them um, because of the limit of our time, but I just want to uh, share these questions with everybody. Um, sure. um, when you were away, um, Hans Christopher Henderson, um, we, we, uh, I have already read um, his uh, second question. Now, the third one, Hans Christopher Anderson asked examples of how people thought, uh, thought out about trend. So basically, this is a question about trend, right? Language reform, speech, speech versus writing, et cetera. Chiu Jing was, for example, keenly aware of the inability of most of her classical poetry to reach the average women. So um, this is interesting because it, it, he is touching upon another dimension of, of trend or transmission. Mm -hmm. So any, any um, quick answer to this? No, there's a very important dimension that um, I've not thought about. So when, um, when you mentioned Chiu Jing was aware, meaning she was self-aware that her poems could or could not reach um, the yeah. yeah common women yeah I mean this idea of literacy is is so key yeah. and I think I think this is where again uh, new sound technologies such as the right. phonograph was really breaking a different mode or register yeah. of um, yeah. public communication yeah. Yeah. because yeah all of these remain very very um, um, elite right in many ways so yeah. the trend right. 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 yeah and of course trend becomes like broadcast if it's actually so you have in, in communications theory you often talk about a point-to-point -point transmission but then which is usually how we read things right on the newspaper or a book it's a point to point uh you can read it you know that's about for example where many people could see it but there's still a limit um i think yeah i think there is um definitely that anxiety over how <laughs> Chuan is still very limited uh, but i do think Okay, this is one, maybe one uh, oblique way that can answer the question is when um, telegraphs were sent, uh, they were then reprinted on newspapers because so that not only the recipient of the dianbao could see it, but also it becomes like gong dian and it becomes chuan dian. So, gotcha. 
Yeah, so the telegraph, uh, which is a private message, could then be read, of course, still by people who need to be literate um, on newspapers, but then they are no longer limited to the intended recipient. So there is an attempt to um, bring more audience into, into this era, definitely still with the newspaper as a medium. Yeah. Um, and yeah, thank you for that. Very well. Thank you very much, Shaolin. I think um, um, we have, um, we have um, uh, used our time. This is just about the moment for all of us to uh, thank you again for your most inspiring talk. And I certainly um, have learned quite a bit. And thank you um, so much. I appreciate your, your presentation. And uh, um, if, um, if I have any other questions, I surely will consult with you. Uh, yeah. Another Chuan, right? Chuan Xin, Chuan Song. Okay. Sure. All right. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, um, thank well, you. Yeah, everybody online, thank you for uh, sharing this time with us. And we look forward to uh, seeing you in a few weeks on um, um, another talk by Professor Michelle Hawks. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. Have a good thank night. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, Charlene, um, my apologies for the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the,